Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. Today's guest is John Howie Jr. John is a member of John Howie Jr. and the Rosewood Bluff. He's formerly a member of the Disarmers, and before that he was a member of the $2 Pistols. Way back in the 90s, he was the drummer for the band Finger. And before that, he spent a couple of years bumming around Europe playing drums for various punk rock bands. This guy has been around for a lot of years and done a lot of good work. We had a great conversation. As I'm recording this, it's a couple of days after Thanksgiving. I hope everybody had a nice break. hope everybody had some nice food. I had about 14 people in, and it was really nice. But it was a lot of cooking and a lot of work. And I've eaten a lot of cake and drank a lot of coffee the last few days, and I'm feeling pretty good. If this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, Crash and Ride is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if we could have honest and open conversations about our suffering, we could start to see some of ourselves and other people, and we could find out what helped them get better, and we could help each other get better and help ourselves. If you're a musician living in America, you know how hard it is to find some kind of health care plan that has provisions for mental health. Unless you're lucky enough to live in Austin, Texas, where there's the Sims Foundation or Athens, Georgia, where we have NutriSpace, you're, you're pretty much out in the cold. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we're living in the middle of a mental health crisis. And there's some there's some new resources like Backline, which I talk about later on in the show. But like, as I've said many times on this show, no one's going to take care of us but us. And I feel like it's helping. I've gotten several emails from people that say things like, you know, I listened to episode 10. I didn't know that there were ketamine infusions available for people who were therapy or medication resistant, so I'm going to go talk to my doctor about it. Or I listened to your episode with Riley Kirkpatrick, and it gave me the courage to go to the harm reduction clinic in my city and maybe get on methadone or suboxone so I could kick my dope habit. So here we are a couple of days after Thanksgiving, and one thing I want to say is I'm really thankful that people are listening. I'm thankful I've had the opportunity to make this show I'm really thankful for the community that sprung up around the show. I, I talk to people every day who've been on the show. I talk to people who have listened to the show. I'm just really, really grateful for the opportunity, and I'm grateful that you're listening, and I'm grateful that you're emailing me, and I'm grateful for everybody who's bought a T-shirt because it helps us keep going. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. So I don't just do the podcast. I'm also a working drummer. I play drums for the rock band 5-8 from Athens, Georgia. There's a movie coming out about 5-8 that's going to debut at South by Southwest this year. Um, be on the lookout for previews. Listen here for screening times and all that. I'll keep everybody updated. I also play with Mike Mills from REM and his side project, the Mike Mills Concerto. And I play drums for the Tokyo rock band Pinky Doodle Poodle. Pinky Doodle Poodle is currently in visa purgatory. They're trying to get their visa renewed so they can come back to this country. They're stuck in Tokyo right now, and I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs because, man, I love playing with that band. They're super exciting. Um, listen for dates in the future. Oh, I have some upcoming 5-8 dates. Hold on. Okay, Tuesday, December 3rd, 5-8 is playing Athens Uncovered, a Giving Tuesday event to benefit NutriSpace, which is a mental health resource here in Athens, Georgia. whole bunch of Athens bands are going to play a few songs by other Athens bands. 5-8 is playing a Glance song, a T. Hardy Morris song, and a Fishbug song, and maybe one other song by the Athens band Nuclear Tourism. Uh, all the proceeds will go to benefit NutriSpace. Show up early because it's going to be a bunch of great music that day. Uh, Saturday, December 7th, 5-8 is playing the Go Bar in Athens, Georgia, and James Hall Band is opening. That's a tiny little space, so get there early so you can get close to the stage. It's one of the last series of shows Go Bar is going to do before they turn into a cafe. They're not going to be a nightclub anymore, so, you know, come by and see that. 
Okay, before we jump into the interview, I have a couple of quick announcements. Crash and Ride is brought to you in part by Greer Amplification. Greer Amp spills the best boutique effects pedals available. If you're looking for an overdrive, boost, fuzz, compressor, or tremolo that is rugged, road-tested, and at home, on stage, in the studio, or in your living room, Greer has the pedal for you. Nick and his staff strive to build the best products around with the best tone you've ever heard. They believe in their products, and they stand behind them, too, backing each one up with a lifetime warranty to the original owner. Each Greer Amp's product is hand-built in Athens, Georgia, USA. Go to www.greeramps.com or visit your favorite music retailer today. Crash and Ride is also brought to you in part by Jittery Joe's, a micro coffee roaster based in Athens, Georgia. They have a special espresso blend named after the podcast. You can get Crash and Ride espresso either whole bean or ground from our website at crashandridepodcast.com. You can also get t-shirts at the website. They have the Crash and Ride logo along with the slogan, Loud Guitars Save Lives. They're available in black or blue. Go to crashandridepodcast.com slash store. Okay. Today's guest, John Howie Jr. You know, I don't really know John. Um, he's a really good friend of one of my best friends in the world, Alex Maiello. And Alex was like, you got to talk to this guy. He's brilliant. He's really well-spoken. And he's had quite a journey. And man, has he. It was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him. You know, John was a punk guy um, and, and post-punk hardcore guy in the sort of like triangle heyday of Palvo and Superchunk and all those great bands. Um the Triangle is what people in the South call Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. And that's where Merge Records is based. And there used to be School Kids Records. And there was Pepper's Pizza, which had amazing pizza. And it was just always kind of a scene there. Cat's Cradle is there, Local 506. Um, and, you know, uh, John has played all of those places. And, and John was part of the nascent Americana scene that sort of sprang up there in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, the $2 Pistols, you know, they toured Europe. They played all over the South did amazing work and then he joined the disarmers and, and played with them for a while behind sarah shook and um and that fell out badly for him and he's sort of been writing these gut-wrenching songs that can be found on the rosewood bluff record not tonight which super heavy record and highly recommend it um and after i heard that i was like yeah i, I have to talk to this guy we talk about his childhood um his journey with his father, who was a huge, uh, like old school country guy and how that affected John's aesthetic and his whole journey in life and his father's eventual death and falling out of a bunch of relationships and, and getting tangled up in various chemicals. And man, I, I just, this guy really opened his heart and I really enjoyed talking to him. So, um, all that said, let's jump into our interview with John Howie Jr. I'm here with John Howie Jr. John Howie Jr. is the guitar player and singer in Rosewood Bluff. Uh, he was a member of $2 Pistols. He's formerly the drummer of the Disarmers. Way back, he was drummer with Finger, and he also played with Chris Stamey's band, June. Chris Stamey was, uh, that was Chris Stamey's group, and then he formed a little band called Alaska um, that put out a release on, They Might Be Giants, had like a CD club, mm -hmm. and, I, and I, I played on that too. And through him, played with Mitch Easter and Peter Holzapple. Um, but I was in another band called June that June. was on Beggar's Banquet. So, but you know, when I uh, when there's so many, I don't know about you, but like as I get older, it's all like, wait a second, did I do that? I think I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. They I tell have, me I was there. So, 
Yeah. I have friends in Nashville, some of whom are incredibly successful, and they're just obsessed about being left out of the liner notes on certain records. Like guys who have like, who, who spend more on an occasional meal than I do on a mortgage payment, and they're just like, I, I played on Blonde on Blonde, and for some reason I'm not in the credits. And it's like, I mean, you could probably like pay to have a, a version of that album cover mocked up and, and, and like framed on your wall with your name on it. Why are you worried about it? Yeah. But, so, yeah. Some dudes, man. It's, it's all about like just being part of the historical record. So that's that's an yeah. in, incredible uh, amount of work you've done. Um, you started playing country um, in the mid '90s uh, when you know the vast majority of country music at that time, certainly the stuff that was making money, wasn't really where the art was. But there were bands like the Backsliders and the Triangle. And of course, there was a sort of nascent alt country scene um, with uh, the members of Uncle Tupelo, then splitting off to form their own bands. And it seems like you were kind of ahead of the curve there. I mean, um, those guys were doing kind of a different thing than I was, and, and I knew all those people, and you know, was was fond of them. I mean, like like Kenny Roby, Six String Drag, and there was there was Whiskey Town, and um, the Backsliders. I was in that band Finger with um, the guitar player Brad Rice ended up playing for a lot of those. He played for Whiskey Town. Uh, he ended up being in the Backsliders. He ended up playing for Keith Urban, Sunvolt, Tiff Merritt. He's had a pretty storied um, career, and I believe he may actually live somewhere around Athens right now. I'm not 100% sure about that. But I, when I was in Finger, so this is probably like 92, not long before I quit, um, the bass player came to me and said, you know, there's this band that's going to be playing downtown and they, they play a lot of the kind of music that you like, like Buck Owens and that kind of thing, Merle Haggard. And uh, so I went down there and that was an early version of the backsliders. And at that point they had a pedal steel player. So they were, you know, much more like, um, they did like close up the honky tonks and things like that. And some originals that sounded like that. And to be honest with you, kind of like, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, not, not nearly as, as historically, uh, you know, significant, but it's sort of like, you know, when you hear about Joe Strummer seeing the Sex Pistols or something like that, it's like, oh, wow, well, that's, I can do that. And that's certainly how I felt when I saw them. Because before that, you know, much like yourself growing up in the South, I mean, I'd seen country acts at the state fair. And I'd heard my dad play the country radio all the time growing up and listen to, you know, Waylon Jennings records and things like that. But there was nobody in my world that I knew of at that time playing that kind of stuff. Um, and when I saw them do it, they're older than me, but not a million years. And they seemed like they kind of ran in the same basic circle that I did, as opposed to the one that, you know, Conway Twitty ran in, right. um, you, you know, and, um, and it kind of opened my eyes to this idea that I could do that. And from that point on, um, it was kind of just a matter of learning how to, you know, play more acoustic guitar than I had been doing. Um, and, and that songwriting style came completely naturally to me. Because before that, I would write a song like, you know, for Finger, that was kind of a replacements type band. So I would try to write a song like that sounded like that. And, or if I was playing with some power pop band, I would try to write a song that sounded like that. Um, but with the country thing, that was that was just totally natural. And I, you know, that's kind of borne out by the fact that I, that's where I've stayed 
you know, for, for decades now. Um, but it was a cool time, you know. I think one of the sort of common threads from that sort of the 90s post-punk, sort of post-hardcore, but like still kind of in that spirit, music and and the sort of nascent alt-country movement at that time was this just whole three chords and the truth thing. Like these aren't complicated right. songs, but they're about things that really happen to real people. Totally. And, and you know, like for me, and, I, and again, you know, I talk about this, like I know you experienced this growing up in a, in a, in a you know, small, basically kind of rural-ish area in North Carolina. Um, I didn't know that anything like that was even an option or that there were even people who would have considered any, you know, a, a, a different kind of lifestyle. I mean, my parents weren't incredibly normal. My mom was a, was, you know, uh, was a, a frustrated improvisational jazz piano player. She listened to Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson and stuff like that, which was not entirely normal for somebody from, from Charlotte, no. um, you know, who was born in 1941. Yeah. Um, you, you know, but, you know, it wasn't until I really heard like the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Ramones and then, you know, whatever, you know, Black Flag and, and that that world that I sort of realized that I could kind of do whatever I wanted to with my life um, because it had certainly not occurred to me before that because nobody I knew was doing anything that seemed you know, off the grid you know, it was like, well, this is what you do you go to school you find a job after high school or you, you know, go to college and, and get this degree. So when you're done, this job is waiting for you. Um, and you know, that's obviously not, and say what you will about John Lydon now. I mean, whatever he's become, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, he was a very pissed off guy, very articulate, but working class. Yes, exactly. And very clear that he was going to do what he wanted to do. And you yeah. were not going to stop him from doing that. You know, no, no sort of societal infrastructure was going to keep him from doing what he wanted to do. Even, even one that, that violently, literally violently was opposed to what he was doing. And, and I was dealing with violence for sure. Yeah. So you grew up, um, sort of Wake County, uh, outside of, mm-hmm. uh, Raleigh and what uh, I'm, of course, I'm not far from there, and I, I grew up in Rockingham County, same county as B.J. Barham. Um, sure. And um, my family were my were mostly mill workers, and so I'm guessing that was probably something similar. Like, interestingly, though, your mom was a was a jazz piano player because my mom became an opera singer um, almost by oh, accident. Wow. Yeah, she 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 had this very kind of working class rural childhood. Um, and then auditioned for the University of North Carolina as a as a singer, and like had this massive cultural shift in her life as she became an opera singer. Um, That's really neat. Wow, yeah. that's really cool. Um, I didn't know anyone like that. You know, <laughs> I didn't yeah. know anyone who had actually, you know, who had who had had that kind of a of a of a, of a you know life shift and 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 moved into something creative and something artistic like that from those origins. I didn't know anyone like that. Well, know? that's interesting. That whole Rockingham County, Reedsville, Danville, Virginia, Eden, North Carolina, like a lot of, uh, there was a guy that I'm somehow distantly related to whose last name was Alcorn, who was one of the original claw hammer banjo players. Like there was a lot of music and culture there. I just think that it was kind of outside of the sort of mainstream of capitalism and therefore kind of gets lost. But Right, like, sure, you know, sure. 
a lot of those same sorts of people moved west from the Dust Bowl and founded the West Coast country music scene in Bakersfield, Okies, and you know, that's where, of course, I guess Buck Owens and that crew came from. But um, sure, yeah, and North, and North Carolina has Del Reeves, and very successful, you know, in his way, uh, uh, a '60s country singer, Stonewall Jackson, had a bunch of hits in the '60s. Those guys, you know. Uh, as you're saying, those guys left too. I mean, they didn't go that far. They just went to Nashville, which is where the action was. But, um, but you know, and, and certainly Earl Scruggs, Don Gibson from Shelby, you know, yeah. good Lord, very yeah. successful. Um, you know, so I, I think you're right. I think, you know, clearly there is, there is a history of it. Um, but I, I was not exposed to that growing up, certainly. Well, um, there's only a couple of radio stations growing up, you know. Yeah. And you got yep, what you got. For sure. It's funny that you would mention pedal steel with the backsliders because pedal steel was tremendously evocative for me because um, my grandparents had a radio in the kitchen um, and I would spend summers with them in as much of the holidays as I could. And pedal steel through that tiny AM radio speaker for me is so evocative of a, of a time, place, and, and, and situation that like it just sends me rocketing back into nostalgia when I hear it. That's that's so great. Yeah, I mean, when I hear to this day, you know, and I've and I've obviously sort of made it my own at this point, but um, certainly like Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, seventies uh, and eight and early eighties, Merle Haggard and George Jones. Yeah, it's like being back in my dad's car immediately. <laughs> you know, it's just like here we are again. You know, for sure. So your mom was a piano player. What what did your dad do? So my father was from Tupelo, Mississippi, um, and his father, my grandfather, was a Presbyterian minister. And they they moved to Memphis. There was a tornado uh, that I think Nick Cave actually has a song about. This, this huge tornado came through Tupelo in, I believe, 1937 when my dad was three. Um, and it destroyed... Uh, this the, a lot of Tupelo, like really, really, really tore it up. And at that point, um, my grandfather, you, you know, I'm very fortunate. Um, I grew up, you know, from Tupelo, Mississippi. My father was a very southern guy, and his father was very southern. But they were not bigots. They were they were really progressive. I mean, I, don't, I hesitate to use the term like progressive because I. I, I that sort of brings something to mind that, that they, they were not, and they certainly had their, their issues in some places, but they were not racist at all. And they were very, they had this very sort of Southern, you know, proudly against things like the Ku Klux Klan vibe. And my grandfather, I think pretty much got into the ministry because he realized that if he did that, people would listen to him more rather than if he were just some guy on the street saying, you know, segregation is wrong um very intelligent guy they moved to memphis when my dad was little and that's where he grew up my grandfather got a job as a minister in memphis and that's where my dad grew up then my grandfather got a job at a church in fayetteville my dad did not go there he stayed in memphis he went to college um but i think decided that he didn't want to be poor anymore and so he went to um, went to school in Memphis, got full scholarship, got a scholarship to medical school, got a scholarship to his internship, and uh, decided to go to Hawaii. And what was this? Would have been late fifties, 
so Hawaii was still very, very much Japanese. So he goes to Hawaii and learns all about Japanese culture, loves it. Um, comes back here to Chapel Hill to do his residency, and that is where he meets my mother, who's listening to Ahmad Jamal and Bill Evans and stuff like that. Uh, she's in UNC at nursing school. And my father got his medical degree uh, and got into substance abuse treatment and ended up running the Wake County Alcoholism Treatment Center. And that is what he did until he died in 2002. He was, he was, that was his passion. Um, not prevention, but treatment straight up. Um, and he was very good at it. You know, 1970s, that wasn't really that kind of much of an in-demand position. You know, people drunk driving on each other's lawns and stuff. Um, You know, but by the mid-80s, all of a sudden, it became acceptable, um, perhaps even encouraged, you know, to recognize addiction um, for, for what it was and that it was okay to go get help. And when that happened... um he was in the right place at the right time. He knew that world backwards and forwards. Yeah. I think that that's, that's due at least in part to the former president's wife seeking treatment, you know, and that's where we get the Betty Ford clinic and and this whole like interest amongst baby boomers in getting better as opposed to like gradually dissipating into an early death in your, in your late fifties, like a lot of people who drank too much before that did. Exactly. Um, I, you know, and, and, and I think whatever your feelings are about the military, one of the things, honestly, that helped my dad, because my understanding is that he was kind of a loose nut um, in, in junior high and stuff like that, which is probably not the best thing to be if you're the, if you're the preacher's son. But every um, preacher's it, kid's he, like that, right? Like, that's the, like, that's the thing. Yeah, the PK is the most yeah. dangerous kid to have in your, in your camp when you're in high school. Right. So he was drafted into the Air Force, and I think... There's a certain degree of discipline that that instilled in him that I was always very impressed by. You know, when I was very little, he chain smoked Lucky Strikes. And I mean, like chain smoked. He would smoke in the shower, light a cigarette, put it up on the top. <laughs> well, yes, my, mo- my mother got mad at him because the alarm would go off in the morning. He'd light a cigarette before he turned the light off. Um, I mean, I mean, turn the alarm off. And then one day he just quit. He just stopped. And that was it. He never smoked a pipe, you know, uh, a cigar ever again. It was done. And, and that, that I think he got that from being in the military. I think it taught him a, a degree of discipline that, um, at the very least had been dormant in him before that, you know, my, my um, dad's retired air force too. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. So I've seen that same thing up close, you know, like, wow. Was he stationed in, in San Antonio ever? Mm, yes, but I think okay. just as part of the reserves, I think they went there for some training when he was in the reserves, but mostly he was at Maxwell Air Force Base, um, okay. Patrick Air Force Base, um, and one other one I can't remember now, but um, oh, Warner Robins. And um, okay. yeah, my dad once uh, set out to run a marathon without having trained enough and, um, and pulled something in his thigh and was going to stop, and then... Uh, the burning pain subsided into a dull throbbing pain. And so he was like, well, I, I can do dull throbbing. I've done that. <laughs> and ran another, I guess that was mile oh, eight goodness. when that happened. He ran, ran the remaining 18 point something miles from there. Um, 
It's a different world, man. I would have been, you know, I'd love to say this is not true, but I I bet I would have been, you know, on the side of the road crying the blues, man. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have just gone, yeah, okay, I can deal with that. Let's keep going, you know. Yeah, a couple Um, of years earlier, I ran that with him, and we were running together, and I hadn't prepared in about mile 11. I was like, man, I'm... I'm hurting. I don't know. I prepared enough for this this year. And without taking his eyes off the horizon, he said, well, you could quit if you're comfortable with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. I was like, all right, I will finish this race on bloody stumps if I have to now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and there are definitely times when, like, you know, it took me years to quit. I mean, I'm 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 an addict. I have addiction, you know, problems along with chemical depression and, and anxiety. So, it I, there are definitely times when I kind of wish that I had done something like that because it took me a long, long time to quit smoking, um, long, long time to stop drinking, which hopefully I have done for good at this point. Knock on every piece of wood around, but um, with him. He got high blood pressure when he was in his fifties, and so he just yeah, that was he had already quit smoking years and years before that. And then he just quit drinking, um, and he just it never seemed like I never saw him snap at anyone, you know. I never saw him, you know, throw a chair across the room and you know do all those things that you do when you're trying to give up something that you're addicted to. I never saw that that in him, he, you know. Um, he had also living in Hawaii had learned about Zen meditation. So he knew about how to do that when things started, you know, getting emotionally out of control for him. He was very good at that. Um, you ever do that? You ever meditate? I've tried, and one of my best friends, my son's godfather, um, does it and and has sworn by it. It has not worked for me, but I am not giving up. I actually have one of the apps on my phone in this here in this 21st century the meditation app. But, um, Which one is and it? It's on my it's, I think it's called Calm. Yeah, I have one called Headspace, and like I, I was, I keep trying to meditate, but it's always at times when I'm already in kind of crisis, which is like trying to rewire the house after it's on fire. Um, and, uh, totally right. Sure. Yeah. Headspace sends me these little reminders that are always like, they're just so cheesy, and I'm just like, oh fuck off, and and it keeps me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it seems kind of new agey, yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know that that's the thing I try to remind myself. My dad was like the least new age, you know, person I've ever met. You know, he he rode motorcycles and listened to Johnny Cash and stuff like that. But and and he swore by it. Um, yeah, that's something I would I'd like to find something like that. That that and you know how it is, like especially like raising kids and stuff. It. it uh, you know, peace and calm is 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 at a premium for sure. Yeah, it's hard you to know. find sometimes. When did um totally. when did these issues with anxiety and depression first first sort of show up for you? When do you first remember like feeling a little different or weird? You know, I mean, I always uh, felt different from other people, and I think that is what again one of the great appealing things about punk rock to me you know, was, I, I read an interview with John Lydon. I was into Adam and the ants in the oh, early eighties. I had those records yeah. like, um, yeah. I, before Prince Charming. Cause I always thought that was garbage, but like the Dirk Kings of the Wild Sox Frontier. Record, Kings yeah. of the Wild Frontier. Yeah. Yeah. So those were game changers for me. I'll, I'll make this brief, but so I was in, 
sixth grade, this would have been 1981, and I had a really close friend who was British. Well, his older brother, I mean, there's always like an older brother in these things, but his older brother was, we were like 12, and he was like 16, and he was cool, you know, and they'd gone home to England for Christmas, and he'd come back with, you know, the latest records that his friends listened to, and so he had Kings of the Wild Frontier. He also had um, Regatta de Blanc by the police, which I, I, you know, obviously now doesn't sound very cutting edge, but in Wake County in 1981 or 80, whenever that was, it was very, you know, I'd never heard of them. They weren't having hits in America yet. Um, and he had the Stuart Copeland solo project, Clark Kent. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's kind of punky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm talking about? So yeah, yeah. I mean, he came into my friend's room once again, like in the context of time, it's a little less cutting edge now, but at the time, yeah, it was really edgy. Clark Kent. It was like it was from another planet compared to like Asia or, or you know, whatever, um, you know, or, or whatever was on the radio at that time. Yeah. So he came into my friend's room and, you know, was just kind of hanging out with us. And <clears throat> he was a nice guy. And he was like, you know, you guys want to listen to some music? And I said, sure. And he goes, well, in England, you know, we, we the charts are different than they are here. And he broke out Regatta de Blanc, which I thought was really cool. He had a version of that that was like two 10-inch records. I'll never forget that. It's weird what you can remember. Um, and then he said, and this is the drummer. It's the it's Clark Kent. And he says bullshit on the first song. He goes, the other ones are complete bullshit. And like that was really, you know, risque. And, right. You know, because you couldn't, you couldn't use that word. Um, but then, and I liked those a lot. And then he broke out Kings of the Wild Frontier. And that was a total game changer. And I looked at that that album cover and you know with them with their crazy weird combination of um pirate and native american deal and i just thought that was the greatest thing and my dad when my father picked me up from there i had some uh, allowance money that i had made from from doing the weeds around their house um and i begged him to take me to the record bar which was a local record store chain and they had a import seven inch single section and i got uh ant music import seven inch and one other which i think was was dog eat dog and i wore those things out yeah man um me too you know and i, I had the i had a cassette of kings of the wild frontier and yeah i just played it until it stretched out and broke so there's nothing left to play yeah it was just so it was so important i felt like i had this great secret that none of the kids I went to school with who I didn't really like or, or at least certainly didn't get along with that well, they didn't, they weren't in on this, you know, this was me. Um, and, um, I bought a magazine with Adam Ant on the cover. I went to see him. He played in Raleigh amazingly on friend or foe when I was 13, early 1983. And, um, Marco Peroni was with him. It was, yeah. I thought that was the greatest thing that would ever happen to me. Yeah, you know, and he played um, that enormous hollow body, like it was some, right, like a Gretsch White Falcon or something. Sure, it had a Bigsby on it or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and um, and around that time, I bought a, a magazine that had an Adamant on the cover, and that was around the time Public Image Limited put out the original single of you know, "This Is Not a Love Song." Right, that, right. And there's this interview with Johnny Rotten, and I just thought everything this guy's saying makes perfect sense to me. Like everything. And that is certainly not how I feel about what he says now when I see interviews with him. But at the time, you know, it, it, it was like throwing somebody, you know, who's, who's 
like sinking in the ocean, a life raft. I mean, it really was that important to me. So my dad gets flown to New York to speak at a conference after that. And he's got giant mustache and wears big Johnny Cash cowboy boots and suits. And he loved going in record stores and asking for, you know, I think he was thrilled about, yeah, do y'all have anything with Johnny Rotten on it? You know, he just loved <laughs> like the idea of you know, <laughs> seeing the look on these guys' faces. So he comes back with the This Is Not A Love Song single and a copy of Nevermind The Bollocks. And I would have been 1983. I was about to, about to turn 14. And that was it. As soon as I heard that stuff, I just realized there were other people out there who were not like everybody that I knew other than kind of my, my, my parents, but they were my parents. So they could be weird. And I just sort of accepted that as, you know, they're, they're my parents. They're already weird because they're older and their their parents, the kids I went to school with, you know, were just so normal and they were so conservative and so Jesse Helms and so Ronald Reagan and all of that stuff. Um, you know, I had African-American friends and, and the kids I went to school with didn't hang out with, with black people, you know? So, um, it's already had that anxiety did not hit me as a legitimate thing until I was in new Orleans in 1988. This is a weird story, but I'll tell it to you. Stayed out all night with a friend of mine. Uh, we went to, it was probably like a gay kind of club. Cause I remember they were playing like, I don't mean this in, in the way it's going to sound, but like stereotypically gay music. And I, and I think everyone there seemed gay and we were, hanging out we were two guys and kind of hanging out that way anyway so we were felt very comfortable there and they were playing like joy division and sisters of mercy and stuff like that everybody's dancing and then we stayed up all night drinking and we went to marie laveau's tomb oh yeah and i had a i had a massive anxiety attack i couldn't deal with any of it i couldn't deal with any of it any of it any of it any of it and we were out on the road hanging out doing stuff and it was an anxiety attack that lasted for a solid probably week it was terrible oh my god that sounds terrible. exhausting so it was you would have been 17 or 18 brutal. at this point at that point i was 19 19 and were you were playing music I, I, was this with a band or were you just traveling yeah yeah i was down there doing that and, and also just kind of hanging out just you know i had dropped out of college at that point and i was just kind of being a 19 year old with no direction, just kind of fucking off. Um, and I completely freaked out. My parents had 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 me in and out of therapy. I think just because I was so obviously not suited for, you know, normal world. Um, and so I'd been, but it was never uh, honestly like the kind of therapist that a 16 year old, kid obsessed with the damned should go to see you know it was some guy who would say like well have you thought about getting involved in your local church you know what i mean or something right. like come on dude look at me you know <laughs> really <laughs> that's where we're going here yeah. um so it 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 you know it's weird because you know um my mother was a psychotherapist and everything like i grew up in in a a home where obviously therapy was very much accepted, but, um, it was not something that I pursued, you know, because, and, and I'm sure that you, that you can relate to this, you know, I'm 50 years old. I'm very, very unashamedly left wing. I've been Jesus vegetarian for 30 years. I was vegan for a couple of years. I've, I've 
had relationships with men and women, but there's still something about me having grown up where I did that is very country and is, and you know, I hesitate to use a term like redneck because as I'm sure where you're from, where I'm from, that meant something pretty negative. It didn't just mean somebody from the country who listens to, you know, country music or something like that. It, I mean, it, it had negative connotations. It's one of those things um, where like I can describe certain attitudes that I have or, or, or things that I like to do as being redneck, but if someone else calls me a redneck, it's kind of like we can call each other that, but you can't call us that kind of thing. Um, because boom. I know when it's a pejorative and I know when it's a term of endearment. And um, That's it. There you go. That was very, very well art articulated. So, you know, and, and I still have that to, you know, to this day, like I'm very suspicious of, of, you know, industry and, 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 you know, city people a lot of the time that's something i've really had to overcome um because the that world is you know it has a price but it there's not a whole lot of manipulation or or passive aggressive behavior in that world you kind of tend to know where you stand and so when i've gotten around more manipulative people as we both know there are plenty of those in the music industry sure um i tend to look on that with a lot of mistrust um and, you know I, th I think the big dividing line for me between the, the world of my grandparents and, and the sort of hipster world that I have to move through as a working musician is is the level of sincerity. Like, right. you know, when <laughs> there's that famous line from the Simpsons Hullabalooza episode where um, Smashing Pumpkins come out on stage and one of the kids in the audience says, Oh, great. Smashing Pumpkins, my favorite. And one of the other kids says, are you being sincere or sarcastic? And the guy, kid says, I don't even know anymore. Um, <laughs> that's perfect. And, yeah, that's yeah, totally perfect. That's I mean, great. you know, I moved to Athens and, uh, you know, to finish college after starting a community college and, and found my, my sort of tribe here, but there was definitely always an element here of people who didn't even know anymore. Like it was, you know, right. Do they, do they sure. like Johnny Cash sincerely or do they like Johnny Cash sarcastically? Do they listen exactly. to Kiss albums sincerely? Do they listen to Kiss albums sarcastically? But I found, you know, like-minded people and started a band and, and was never really hip, but never really had any complaints, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, for, for, for sure. You know, um, you know, like, I don't know what your um, journey has been like, you know, dealing with this sort of stuff. But for me, as far as, like, depression goes, I don't think I really realized that I'd been dealing with it my whole life until I was, when I was 33, so I'm 50 now. In 2002, my father died suddenly, and we were very close. Um, you know. I don't think he really understand me, understood me pursuing music as a career in any way uh, or even kind of a, or a half career, which it sort of is now for me. But um, until I started doing country music and when I formed the $2 pistols, that's when he was like, Oh, okay, I get it. And then obviously when you get to open up for Merle Haggard and Billy Joe Shaver, um, when things like that start happening, then to him, and, and I understand this, you know, and on his playing field, that legitimizes it. And it did. Yeah. So he came to every show that I did within an hour of where he lived. He, he, he would come see me and stand right down front. Um, 
you know, he's like my biggest fan. And then he died suddenly when I was 33. I'd gone through a really awful breakup. It was the first time I knew about that someone had, um, had, had cheated on me. Um, and I, you know, like whatever, I'm sure I was not a great boyfriend. I don't, I don't believe anything happens in a vacuum, but it was incredibly painful regardless. And, um, I was leaning on him a lot. You know, I was old enough for us to be close friends, um, instead of, you know, we still had the father and son dynamic, but uh, since I was taking, you know, self-sufficient, we could also be very good friends at that point. And, uh, we were hanging out a lot. We were going for a lot of walks. You know, I was, I was devastated. I was completely, completely devastated. I was madly in love with this, with this woman and this went down. Uh, and then he died about a month after that went down and I was nowhere near over it. I'd been dating this woman for, you know, three years at that point. Um, and it was terrible, you know, I mean, I, 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 even talking about it now, 17 years later, it was like the worst thing that had ever, I, I can't imagine anything. I don't want to imagine anything worse than that. It was just fucking horrible. I woke up one day, um, Monday morning and there was a message on my answering machine from my mother saying you need to come to the hospital. Your father's had some kind of stroke. We're not sure. He called the EMTs. They thought he was okay, but he insisted they take him to the hospital. And when they got here, the doctor says, yes, you have to have open heart surgery. There's something going on with your heart. And he died during that. Yes. It was terrible. And it sent me to an incredibly dark place. And, um, around that time, I, I was seeing a psychologist who said, I, I, I just think, you know, you're, you're, dealing with a lot and you should be sad. You should be very sad, but you know, it, it's, you're getting to a scary place and, and I think you need to be diagnosed by a psychiatrist, by a medical doctor and possibly put on antidepressants. So I was, and they put me on Wellbutrin, um, a, a fairly mild dose of something that's already kind of mild. Yeah. Um, and I stayed on that off and on, for several years and but I, I i to be honest with you man i i didn't take it seriously i don't think i took chemical depression seriously until about two years ago and i went downhill again after a pretty bad breakup and had a um a great primary doctor a woman here in chapel hill who said you know Kind of the same thing that the, the, the psychologist had said to me, you know, before, like, yeah, you should be sad. This is a sad time, but you know, you, you're at the bottom of this barrel. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and that's scary. And so I, I think we should try to do something, you know, and so tried all the Prozacs and all that stuff and none of it worked. And so she said, well, well, Butrin seems to have worked. Um, let's just try giving you more of that. You know, we can, see what happens and when they did that um the clouds parted man you, you know and and it's not like it all of a sudden everything was easy but it was navigable you know i i, I could get out of bed um i could engage with my son um i could go to work and and so i have stuck with that regimen it's yeah. been about two years now. You mentioned um, that you're a recovering person, or at least off drugs. Like, was was drinking or, or drugging like a 
an attempt at self-medication earlier in your life? And if so, like, how does that interact with your Wellbutrin? Like, are you, are you totally abstinent now? Talk to me about that a little bit. I'm totally abstinent now. Um, I haven't had any, any alcohol in a few months. A few months ago, I kind of tried to go back, um, which was stupid, you know, and just kind of try and just see if I could, you know, it, it, it's frustrating to not be able to go to a baseball game and have a beer and stop like your friends can, you know, that's a, that's a drag that may sound like a first world problem. And I guess it probably is, but it sucks to not be able to put something down and whatever it is that I've done, that's even mildly addictive. I have to do it all or nothing smoking cigarettes. I smoked myself into a tumor in my lung that they removed. Um, thankfully I'm, I don't have cancer or anything like that. And nothing has come back. But in 2015, they found a thumbnail sized tumor in my upper lung. I smoked for 22 years. Um, but it, it took that at 46 years old for me to go, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. You know? Um, um, you know, it's just, I just am an addicted addict. You know, I get addicted to places, people, um, that's just, that's just a part of my personality that I've really had to accept. And I think, you know, one of the things that sucks about it, I mean, I've gone to meetings and stuff, um, and found a lot of good in those, like for certainly the, the serenity prayer, like that thing, though it's hard to put in practice and I'm not a religious person, like, but you don't have to be, you know, to appreciate the fact that, some things are just out of your fucking control, man. And you have to let Most that things. go. Exactly. And I'm not good at that. I mean, I, even as I'm saying it right now, like I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at going, you know, this person that I really wish was not doing these things is just going to do them. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's just hard for me to live with, man. Yeah. You know, um, I think these dependency issues with, with substances, but also codependency and, and, and they're all part and parcel of kind of the same big ball of like feelings are hard and I'm right. in recovery and have been for many years. And like, as I've, I've become more reflective about it in recent years and it just all boils down to the fact that it's real hard for me to sit with myself sometimes and just be sad yep. and be yep. okay with being sad. Like, as a friend of the, as a friend of mine who um, uh, is a survivor of a horrific sexual assault, and she was in therapy, and and she was really struggling, and the therapist said, maybe you just need to be sad for a while because something terrible has happened to you, and yeah. you should just be sad, and um, yeah. it was revelatory for her because we're told, you know, especially like you know, in America in the first part of the 21st century. Um, I think millennials have embraced this, that, you know, you're not going to be happy all the time and maybe it's okay to make decisions based on that. Right. Right. It's such a, it's such a burden. You feel such a huge responsibility. I have the guy who plays bass for me is, he's like 10 years younger than me. He's, he's like 40. And, and he recently said something like that. You know, he said, you, you know, like, you're going into these situations thinking that if they don't work out, 
then somehow you're a failure. And the fact of the matter is that, like, you know, by and large, in this life, most things probably don't work out. So putting that kind of pressure on the situation um, can really mess you up emotionally. And that had never occurred to me before. You know, I thought, well, if this doesn't work, then I'm just a loser. I'm just a complete and utter failure. Yeah. Um, And, you know, instead of kind of thinking... You know, there's a very good chance this isn't going to go exactly the way that I want it to or or that I feel like it should, you know. Um, And that's not, you know, and that's just the way it it might be. And that doesn't mean that the world's ending or that everyone hates me or that I need to go drink a 12-pack of Budweiser or, you know, a a pint of Jack Daniels and a six-pack of Yingling or whatever and smoke two packs of American Spirits on top of that. Yeah. but that's hard, man. Yeah, the bottom line you know? is most relationships fail. Right. Most bands fail. Yep. The joy is in the moments when it's not failing, you know. Right. And that's right. A, and and that and that's enough of a reason to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a good friend of mine recently who was again a lot younger than me, but he was like, you know, I'm just kind of ready to go back to a world where I'm excited because that weekend I'm getting to play music with some of my friends and not worry about, you know, that if I don't have 15 more Instagram followers after that show, then somehow I've not done what I was supposed to do, you know? And it's just, yeah, it's a very pressurized world. And obviously not just with, with music, but as, as you say, relationships, like, you know, I'm, in a really great relationship, like, this is the best relationship I've ever been in. There's no, there is no doubt. But you know, um, and and I give a, a lot of of credit, if not all of it, to you know my my girlfriend, my my partner. She's a very no bullshit, very together, um, extraordinarily compassionate, but firm human being. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I probably wouldn't have been ready for that even three or four years ago. You know, I just wasn't, you know, psychologically, emotionally in the place to be able to handle that um, because I was just always down on myself, you know, seeing not the silver lining, but the gray cloud, you know, um, and and when you're dealing with depression and stuff like that, I don't think you really realize, you know, just how much devastation it's causing in your life until you start getting out of it. And you're like, God, you know, like all the stuff that happened that was completely traumatizing, you know, some of it I probably could have avoided if I'd known how to deal with this thing, you know, or at least that's the way I, I see it. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of people, um, there's a lot of debate these days about like people getting off of drugs or getting off of alcohol and, and how they do it. And, whether the 12 step thing is valid or not. But like, I think if you step back from it and really look at what the 12 steps are, it's a way of, of unloading some of the emotional baggage that makes you resentful and sad and depressed and want to, and want to blot out those feelings. Like it's not magic. It's not medicine. You don't just go sit in the meetings and and suddenly stop wanting to, to drink too much. You like, 
you start this process of offloading your fear, anger, right. resentment, guilt, shame, all those things that, that like get in your head and you start that negative self-talk where you're like, you're useless, you're a piece of shit, you know, because you did these things and you have to just find it in your place to forgive yourself and move forward. And, and that's what it's all about for me. And that's why it's useful. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and when I was, when, you know, in the fall of 2017, when I was kind of like, you know, coming out of this relationship didn't end particularly well. I was trying to take stock of my life. You know, what can I do? You know, I'm living in this new place. And right around that time, my son, um, who was 10, uh, had a pretty severe falling out with his mother that has not been mended. And so he came to live with me all the time. So on top of kind of going through the, and, 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 don't get me wrong. I loved that. But on top of going through this, this breakup, going through this move and leaving a band, which I did at that time as well. Um, I was all of a sudden, you know, the sole caretaker of a 10 year old boy. So, you know, uh, I kind of went, well, you know, you can keep going down this road and, and, you know, feeling like crap every morning and snapping at people because you're hungover and being, you know, feeling terrible because you don't think you can stop doing this or you can try to work on it. And I like one of the sad things to me about chemical depression is that, you know, it took a lot of trial and error with me this last time a couple of years ago to get the meds where they needed to be. And it's like, you're already, you know, so predisposed to just going, fuck it. You know, I don't want to deal with this. I'm not worthy of dealing with this or, or whatever that, that the fact that on top of that, I was lucky. I had a, a couple friends who were very, very supportive. And one of whom even like, you know, would drive me to the doctor and you have to go do this. Like it's going to work. It's just going to take a few tries because I tried Prozac and it just made me sleep all day, which was not what I wanted to be doing. You know, I, I could do that on my own. Um, right. You know, and, 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 and I think that's one of the things is that, like, I think there are people who, you know, it's still stigmatized to a degree, as you and I both know. Um, I think there are people who get in there and start trying it and they're like, well, none of this is working. So fuck it. You know, I'm just going to keep living this, this life. And that's really sad, you know? And as you and I also both know, like just asking for help, man, is just being able to go to someone and going like, I need help. Like I need help, please. That's so hard to do, especially for some people. Um, you know, it wasn't easy for me and, and I know it's significantly harder for some people. Um, every player you know, to a certain extent lives in the public eye. And we're right. actively discouraged from admitting our frailty, especially if we're sidemen, like in the situation of a of a of a of a hired gun, like nobody's gonna wanna take a miserable guy on the bus, you know. Right. So yep, we, it's true. There's a part of every sideman friend of mine who's struggling who is thinking, I'm afraid to talk about or even like start the process of getting help because I don't want to make myself unmarketable, but at the same time, like you know, ultimately, if we talk honestly about these things, we've all got these thoughts and these feelings and in, in, in different times and different severities in our lives. But there's no shame in getting the help, man. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. 
Um, and, and again, like I, I was lucky in particular this last time where I had, you know, I have a, I have a sister who I'm very tight with. My parents are dead, but my sister and I are very tight. She lives in she's a professor in South Carolina, about three hours away, but we're very, very close. Um, I had a couple of friends at that time, one of whom was, a, was an RN registered nurse who was like, you know, I've, I've I've seen this, I've seen what this does to people and I've obviously seen what it's been doing to you and you have a good doctor. You just got to keep trying, man. You just got to keep trying, you know? Um, and my sister had been through it as well. So I, I had that support, you know, and, and, and I think having that kind of non-judgmental support is huge, you know? And, and again, that's one of the things that I got out of going to meetings and stuff is that, you know, here are these people who are not judging me. They're just here, you know, and, and we're all like, fuck, you know, this is a rough thing to have to deal with. Yeah. You know, being an addict is, is, a, is, a, is a bear, but look, there's like 15 of us sitting right here. We all have it too, you know, um, and you don't feel quite as isolated. Well, the hardest thing for me uh, was like, you know, quitting was like firing my best friend. Like, um, <laughs> Totally. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Well, yeah, and, and like, sure. And, and I, one of my favorite classic country songs is is the, the night the bottle let me down, uh, or tonight yeah. the bottle let me down, because like when that finally happens, you're like, oh, you too, you betrayed me too, you know. Uh, yep. But yep. like a lot of that is just my own doing. Like I created this hellish life for myself and and um, had to claw my way out of it. But then, like, there's that brief period right after quitting where you're like, oh God, I feel so much better. And then all the real feelings come rushing in, and that's when the real yeah. work starts. Totally, totally. And I still, you know, I mean, I, I see people smoking, drinking hell, doing cocaine on TV. And I'm like, man, that looks good. <laughs> Give me some <laughs> of that, you know. <laughs> but yeah. the last time, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure everyone <clears throat> needs to do this. I don't think they do. I hope they don't. But the last time I went back, you know, I realized very quickly, and instead of doing things that I had learned to do, and it was certainly a learning process that made me feel good, you know, even if that just means going to sleep at the same time as my girlfriend, you know, or or reading in bed while she's falling asleep, which I love to read, read books, and I, I read all the time, I read every night. Um, you know, instead of doing that, I'm just sitting here alone, and I'm alone again in this room with, you know, six beers, and I'm just knocking them back in the hopes that, you know, like, like, how did I get here again? I thought maybe I could just have a couple beers and watch TV because I like the way beer tastes, but nope. Now here I am again with my six pack, you know, that is barely going to be refrigerated because I'm barely going to give it the time to be refrigerated. Uh, and then I'm going to want another six pack and I'm going to want as many as I can have until I'm no longer conscious. Um, this is terrible. You know, it, 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 it just, I don't know. I, 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 I had been sober for several months until that happened to me this last time a few months ago. And it, it took almost no time from, I mean, we're talking like a few days yeah. before I went, nope, I'm here again. And I don't want to be here again. And, you know, and some of that I think is because my life is just otherwise in a, in a thankfully very good place. You know, who knows if it wasn't how, if I had had this, the strength and the self-control to stop that. Love to tell you I would have, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think for me, like, 
there's that just howling pit of despair at the center of everything that I tried to throw everything in my life into um, to try to stay ahead of it. And eventually everything failed. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, going to a lot of the same solutions that had worked before stopped working. And, and I, you know, nothing really worked for that until I like just face it head on and dealt with it and, and then went around and made some apologies to some people who I, and that was really hard. Um, it's tough. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. But you're, um, you're on the path now. You're, you're, you've made a cup, a uh, solo record. Um, not tonight. I did. And uh, talk about you know, sad country music. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a sad one. Even, I mean, like a, I think maybe too sad for some people, but I was, I was happy to, to get it out, um, to kind of get it done and be able to sort of move on from it. And, you know, the people who like it, um, like it a lot, you know, it's not, that is not a record that you put on at, at the party. It's not like some of the records I've made with the, you know, the nice, you know, shuffles and then the, you know, Johnny Cash songs and then the ballad. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's dark. It's about a dark thing. It's about the dissolution of a, of a relationship. You know, it's a bunch of songs written very quickly, um, about one thing. And, and, you know, uh, and as such, it's not, not a happy fun listen but um you know it was it was a cool thing to do because i i wasn't you know there's no band it's different people and um i think there's eight songs on that record with drums maybe seven but i know i play drums on all of them except one you know and, and um so it was it was it was a cool thing to what is it about the power of of sad music like why why is it that when we're already in a fucked up place we like drop like a Nick Drake record on or like, I, you know, the only theory that I've ever really had, and this is what's great about, you know, you doing a podcast like this um, also is that I think, you know, just feeling alone and feeling isolated, which obviously those kinds of things, whether you're an addict or not lead to, you know, heavy drinking and stuff, things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, I always loved George Jones as an adult. I got into him when I was about 21 years old. And by that point, you know, I loved him when I was a kid because my dad drove around in the car singing along with it and he was happy. So to me, that was great. But as an adult, you know, to me, it was, I had gone through what I thought at that time, you know, was significant heartbreak. I'd gone through a relationship that had ended that, or a couple of them, even by that point that had not ended the way I wanted them to. I didn't want them to end at all. And they did. And I'd experienced feelings of isolation. I lived in Europe, toured around, bummed around Europe playing drums for a punk band um, when I was 19 and 20 years old. So I'd felt isolation. I felt heartbreak. I felt loneliness. I felt anxiety. Um, and the best of those guys articulate that stuff so well, you know, certainly like your George Jones, or as you were saying, like, like, like Merle Haggard, um, tonight the bottle let me down when that's done properly, you, you know, for me, at least it was always like, okay, 
I'm not the only person that has ever had to go through this bullshit, you know? And that's also why, like, I, I really do want to make the point, like, that for me, being in this great place in life was very, very hard to get to. I mean, I'm 50 years old. It took me forever to get here. And it took a lot of trial and error, you know? So that's what I mean about being really important, that you're doing this podcast because, you know, it's real easy to go, well, this shit just does not work for me, especially with like bureaucracy in, 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 you know, health insurance and all the other things that keep you from getting help. Um, you know, that like I'm, I'm here as proof, man, that if you just fucking hang in there, lean on your friends and don't give up that you can get on the other side of it, or at least on the path, you know, and, and when you're on the path, that's way better than not being on the path, as you and I both know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's often hard at first because you're used to numbing, like, some of those feelings of anxiety or, or fear of rejection mm-hmm. or whatever. But staying on it, building stronger friendships with people who are good for you. Um, yeah. Acknowledging and atoning for your past bad behavior, it all kind of eventually comes together to a point where you can have pretty pretty good life free from like you know that howling void of fear and sadness at your core yeah totally and you know i mean some of those guys like as we know like look at your lefty frizzells and george joneses and all those guys like they lived it you know i mean lefty frizzell died in his 40s you know and he looked like a 65 year old man you know i mean those guys there's an honesty you know, uh, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, like, like the, the, the best of those people, you know, you can tell that those are things that they've actually felt. And for me, yeah. Like, like hearing them sing about it is kind of like going to a meeting or something. It's like, okay, well, I'm not alone because there you are, you know, <laughs> you are right there coming, uh, you know, yeah. uh, out of my speaker. I mean, that's um, the great power of a song like A Good Year for the Roses or The Grand Tour right. or He Stopped Loving Her Today is the the level of honesty about the desolation is so perfect yep. that you can say, okay, I, I'm not the only one who's been through this. Yeah, and, and exactly. And it, it's, it's articulate in a way that I think that genre doesn't necessarily get a lot of credit for. You know, because people think it's simple or, or, or whatever they think about it, you know, that it's, it's somehow like, you know, podunk or, or sophomoric or simpleton music. It's, I mean, that's, that's just class that's prejudice, like, right? I mean, that's just like yeah, people who yeah. feel like they're above working class people looking down on the art that moves them. Like, right. that's just hillbilly music. Right. right. I don't have any patience for that. Uh, I don't either. And it's, and it's, it's, it, it's a falsehood because I, you know, I think George Jones, in, in his way, and he stopped writing, which is a shame to me. Um, that's a different tangent. But, um, you know, at a certain point, wasn't really writing songs much anymore after maybe this early 70s, mid-70s, somewhere. And he'd still have co-writes and stuff. But I think he was a great songwriter with, with the window up above and stuff like that. Um, but it didn't matter. His He was, he, he was as articulate with a, with a set of words, you know, as anyone who's who's ever lived. And I don't just mean, you know, singers. I mean, poets. Like, he, 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 he was so good at 
conveying that set of feelings that for me, when I heard that, when I was 21 years old, like I heard it as an adult, um, that was when I started and, and, and I don't mean this as a diss towards like this band or anything, but that was when to me, like the Rolling Stones, that just didn't, I just wasn't going to cut it anymore. You know, once I'd heard that it, it was, it was a different level of commitment. It was a different level of passion. And I think that's kind of what also connects the sort of, you know, punk rock people who end up liking that stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, because yeah. You, you, you know, Joe Strummer or, or whoever, I mean, say what you will about him, you know, he pretty clearly meant that stuff. And, and Johnny Cash means it when you listen to those records. George Jones, like we just said, means it. Merle Haggard means it. You know, Loretta Lynn means it. And, and when, when you hear that, you know, and, 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 and it's not, you know, yes or whoever. And again, not, not to like dog those bands because, you know, whatever music makes you happy makes you happy. But, but, but when you hear that degree of commitment, man, it's, um, it's intense. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I, I, while we were talking, I, I pulled up my favorite stanza that George Jones ever wrote, which is from Goodyear for the Roses. Um, right. Or the lip print on the half-filled cup of coffee that you poured and didn't drink, but at least you thought you wanted it. That's so much more than I can say for me. I mean, for come sure. on, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and honestly, in lesser hands, in a, you know, in, in the voice of a lesser singer, who knows how that would have turned out. But, man, when, when, when you – like, I'm, I'm just thinking about that. And I probably haven't listened to that song in a, in a year or two just because I, you know, don't break it out that much anymore. But just thinking about him singing that and how much him singing that meant to me in my 20s. You know, it makes the hair stands up, stand up on your neck. It's just unbelievable how powerful that is coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's that's the responsibility we have as performers to be aware that we have that kind of power. I think, um, and to like just fucking take care of ourselves so that we can live for those moments, so that we can hopefully yeah. create something that even approaches that level of greatness. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Something to aspire to for sure. So recently here at Crash and Rod, we've become aware of a new industry-wide initiative focused on mental health called Backline. Backline is a hub for artists, industry professionals, and their families to quickly and easily access mental health and wellness resources. Backline has partnered with leading support organizations and care providers to streamline access to services specifically geared towards the music industry. Go to www.backline.care to get the support you need to thrive both on and off the road. Now, recently I spoke to someone from Backline as part of a services episode that will hopefully air before Christmas. And she told me that what Backline does is it assigns to each musician who checks in a caseworker who then works with you in your area to find mental health resources that are tailor-made to fit your needs and your ability to pay. Also, they can provide like sober companions for touring musicians who are trying to stay off drugs, and they can get you hooked up with mental health resources in your area. For example, if you live in Athens, Georgia, they'd send you to Nucci Space. NutriSpace is a nonprofit musician's resource providing mental health care and counseling to anyone who walks in the door and says they're in crisis. With musicians, they can provide subsidized care and referrals to counselors. NutriSpace has saved hundreds of lives, including my own. For more information on NutriSpace, call 706-227-1515 or go to NUCI.org, that's Nucci.org, for more details. 
If you're struggling with anxiety and depression and you're possibly contemplating self-harm, you can always call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It's 24-7. It's free. It's confidential. They have trained volunteers to help you through your crisis. 1-800-273-8255 or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. All right, let's jump back into our interview with John Howie Jr. You're you're currently working on a new record. Just got done. Um, Not Tonight came out September 2018. It had taken me a few years to make it because I was playing drums for Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, and I kind of focused on that. You know, they they were on Bloodshot Records, and they they wanted all of that, and I decided to kind of give that a shot. But when I left the group in fall of 2017, um, the goal was to finish Not Tonight and what that meant at that point was bringing in people to do the things that I couldn't do, like play pedal steel guitar, um, play cello, um, you know, things like that. I'd already had Eric Peterson from the Disarmers play electric guitar in a couple songs. Um, but I, so at that point I brought in bass, pedal steel, cello, and some other electric guitar. Wrote a couple songs at that point in time to just put the kind of ribbon on the whole box um, and then proceeded to, to finish it and played a, a show in Chapel Hill for the release with, you know, this big band, cello, my band, the Rose of Bluff, and an added guy playing a hollow body guitar and singing more harmonies. It was cool. It was fun to have all that. Like we did a Scott Walker song, you know, shit, shit that you can do when you have a, you know, <laughs> someone yeah. playing a cello, you know, really well with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, promoted that some, you know, for for a while. We, we did some festivals and and shows up and down the East Coast. Um, and then so now we're yeah we're working on another band record another band with another record with the rosewood bluff um and we've done you know we we just were in the studio for three days so we did backing tracks uh and electric guitar and pedal steel for eight songs so i've got to do acoustic guitar and vocals on those and then we have four or five more to do and with any luck that'll be out by summer of next year you know um so looking forward to that. You know, what, are you self-releasing? Are you working with a label? There's a label that we work with called Sua Sounds. It's a guy that used to be in a band called The Everyman, and he moved here from New Jersey. And I was working on Not Tonight. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. Um, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen with it. And he said, well, I'm going to start a record label, so why don't you finish that thing? And I'm going to put out my solo record. He made a record at uh, his name's his, his name's Michael Venatolo Mantovani. He goes by Mike VM. He made a record in Muscle Shoals um, with with that world. And um, he said, I'm going to put my record out and then I'll put your record out. So it was really cool because it, it motivated me to, to finish this record that was kind of fragmented at that point. I'd been making it over several years kind of when I could between playing drums for the Disarmers and playing band gigs with the Rose of Bluff. So it really motivated me to, to finish it. Um, 
he put out a record by a guy named Al Riggs. He's putting out a record by a woman named Skylar Gudas, who's really great. And she does those big star third concert things, that tour with Chris Damey and, and Ken Stringfellow from the Posies and all yeah, those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, he put out a, a great record by a woman named Reese McHenry, who's a fantastic singer. And so hopefully it'll be on that label. Um, you know, assuming that record label keeps going, everything seems so kind of ephemeral or whatever now. Um, yeah. But if he doesn't put it out, I'll I'll probably put it out myself. Though, it sure is nice when someone else does it. You yeah, I kind of for, forgotten how nice that was. You know, it's been several years since the Jailer Pistols were on Yep Rock um, for a long time, and I, I left the label in two thousand seven. Released the Two Dollar Pistols record on my own put out two rows of bluff records on my own. So it was actually like, Oh wow, that's right. I don't have to like do all this stuff. This is really nice. So, you know, but it's, it, you know, understandably it's not that easy to get a record label, you know, to put out a record by someone who's not going to be on the road all the time. I mean, part of the reason, but even before I quit Sarah Strick and the Disarmers, we were already talking about getting a substitute drummer in to do some shows because it got to the point where they wanted to go out for two months at a time and, and you've I got sole custody of your son yeah and even if i didn't you know when you're a single parent you're only seeing them half the time at that point anyway so then you start cutting into that significantly and it just was not something i wanted to do i think there are people out there who can be touring musicians and be you know good parents or whatever and maybe they have another parent in the picture who can they can kind of work that out but that was not the situation that i was in so yeah my son and I are very, very tight. We are very, very tight, and we have been forever, you know, since he was born. He's 13 now? He's 12, 12. yeah. He's in seventh grade here. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to, you know, we, we were touring. We'd go out for a couple weeks and come back for a couple weeks. And honestly, even that was um, was taking probably more of a toll on my relationship with my son than I um, would have wanted to admit at the time. So it was already getting to the point where I was like, we're well, just going to have to, like, if you're going to be gone for two months, I, I can't do all of that, you yeah. know, or even most of it. Um, so I'm kind of at this point in life that I think a lot of people probably get to when they're, you know, my age. I mean, it's, it's nice because I have songs and movies and TV shows, and I think there are still people out there who like what I do. Um, the records still, you know, do okay, and people find them. They tend to find their audience, but you know, I'm not, I'm not doing South by Southwest and things like that. You yeah. know, that, that those, those days are just over. You know, and I was always the the punk rock part of me always hated that stuff anyway. You know, it just did. You know, because those things aren't punk rock. I'm not knocking people for doing them. I've done them. Two Dollar Pistols did them, and I certainly did them with the Sarah and the Disarmers. Um, when they were, you know, signing to Bloodshot and trying to get signed and all that, but industry showcases and photo ops and all that stuff, man, that's the farthest thing from anything I want to do now. Yeah, it's just not where my head's not. Back in the '90s, South by Southwest in the early days was something completely different than what it is now. This is true. I still go like every year because our label does a big like showcase, but. If it if it conflicts with my daughter's birthday or something, I'm the one being like, you know what, guys, we're gonna miss this year because it's <laughs> it's not crucial that we um 
we do this except out of love for the guy who runs our label because he's an amazing guy and does amazing work but like right. i'm not i'm not expecting to come back from south by southwest with a profound life change of any kind well sure yeah and and i mean to be honest with you if the guy who runs sewer sounds like i'll pretty much do anything he asked me to do because he put out not tonight and i don't know who would have done that you know and 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 he, and he believed in it you know and so when someone you know has that belief in you like i'm definitely willing to go to the mat for him you know but um but left to my own devices that's not gonna happen you, um yeah you know Man, I usually wind these things up with a series of 10 questions that I've worked out. Okay. Um, and if you're ready, we can jump into that. Hit me. All right, Ben. What's the fondest memory you have of a meal that you've had? You know, so that, I, I wish this was a short answer. I'll make it as short as I can. I grew up with very Southern cooking. Like, my dad ate pork chops. You know, if we went to Bojangles, he would get, like, chicken livers and gizzards and stuff like that you know he ate chitlins he was he ate that stuff my mom made this wonderful dish called apricot chicken it was it doesn't sound very good but it was the great like i would beg her to make that she would make it on my birthdays when i was 20 years old i became vegetarian and like my parents didn't know how to deal with that like that was just not you know they were they just had no no knowledge of that so um honestly my I, I hate to say this, but my fondest memory that I have at this point of a meal that wasn't like, you know, my dad, you know, getting McDonald's and watching Hee Haw with me, which those were great memories. Um, occasionally on Saturdays when we were growing up, you know, we would splurge and he would go get cheeseburgers from McDonald's, which is a huge deal. It was a huge deal. Because um, we rarely ate out and we would sit in front of the TV on Saturday and he'd watch, I would watch Hee Haw with him and see all that stuff. But one of my favorite memories is when I was probably 25 or 26 years old, I went home for Christmas from Chapel Hill. My parents were still living on, out on the edge of Wake County. Kind of dreading dealing with the food thing. Um, and my dad had gone to, there was a place here called Southern Season, and he had gone there and bought a bunch of prepared and very, very good um, like vegetarian casseroles and things like that. And, and it was very sweet. Um, and he, he clearly did that for me, you know, because he, he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to eat his turkey or, or whatever. Um, so that's a really fond memory for me is that first time that he was like, all right, well, I'm going to cope. I want my son to be home. I want him to be comfortable. I want him to be happy. So I'm going to go pretty far out of my way and spend, and spend money on top of that. Um, to make sure that at this meal he has what he wants. I, I, you know, I think feeling, feeling that kind of love, man, is really important, you know, from a, from a parent. Um, and I certainly felt it that day. Yeah. My grandparents were so baffled by my vegetarianism in my twenties and, and bent over backwards to accommodate me and stopped making collard greens and pinto beans with ham in them and started using vegetables. That's really sweet. Yeah. Oh God, man. That's really sweet. The, the level of affection I have for my grandparents is just like yeah, my mother's, my mother's yeah. parents, working class, Eden, North Carolina, like mill worker and a postman. And they were just, the, they're my superheroes. And um, so great. My, my stepfather is currently closing out the house that he's lived in for many years. And after my grandparents died, a whole bunch of their stuff went into his basement. 
And now I'm getting these boxes full of things that belong to my grandparents, including that radio I talked about earlier, the little AM kitchen radio that they had. Like, that's awesome. Oh, that's man. great. It's been a really emotional couple of months. Like, just I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. That's intense, man. That's really intense. It's cool that you're doing it, but yeah. that's sounds very intense. Well, yeah, my wife sure. does a lot of the heavy lifting. Like, she opens the boxes and holds things up and go. Salvation Army, your brother, or we keep. Like, it's just. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) And every now and then I just have to take a break, you know, like, okay, I'm just too sad about not having those people in my life anymore to keep doing this. And she's very patient. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, All right. Second question Uh, What's the Mm -hmm. most frightened you've ever been? That's easy. The most frightened I've ever been is when I was. I don't remember how old I was. I was four. Or five, we went to Disney World in Florida, which was a huge deal then. This is obviously way pre, you know, any kind of, like, I remember the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, we saw Brenda Lee, I think, was was performing there. But my sister went off with um, my mother, and they kind of did the things they wanted to do. And I went off with my dad. And at that age, all I wanted to do was go see the animatronic Mickey Mouse you know, and do that stuff. Yeah. But my sister, you know, was, was more worldly. She was, you know, seven or eight and she went to the haunted mansion. Now they've changed the haunted mansion a lot now from what I understand. It's a, it's much more chill, but at the time, let me tell you, man, when you're three or four, 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 four or five years old, you go in there. And the first thing they do is tell you that you're never going to leave. This voice comes over loud. You're never, ever going to get out alive. You go in this ballroom and there's all these dead people dancing around, all these ghosts dancing around. You go in a graveyard and there's these three kind of dead guys walking through it, carrying, I think one of them was like maybe even carrying a head or something like that. You ride on a train and when you look in the mirror, there's all these ghosts like, you know, around your face. I was absolutely terrified. It it terrified me for a solid year, I'm sure. It was and absolutely horrifying. I'm remembering horrifying. every part of this as you describe it because yeah. I was four at Disney World okay. at the Haunted Mansion and had the exact same experience. It scared the shit out of me. I, I was, you know. And there were pictures I, on I the mean, wall that would change. Remember that part? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it was so real. It seemed so freaking real. And, and you, you were, know? when you were on the train. As you pass the mirrors, the person next to you, which in my case was my dad, had transformed into a ghost. Exactly. And it was. Yeah. I looked over; my dad was still there, and it, I, that was way too much for kids, man. I don't know whose fucking idea was, that place was. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, I, it, that's amazing. So, like, we can't be the only people whose lives were traumatized by visiting the, the you know, haunted mansion. There's probably a Facebook page somewhere that's like victims of the haunted, like. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Adverse childhood experience expression page. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it was that 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 stands out to me uh, out of out of everything that stands out as as and I, and I ran away to California when I was sixteen, and I I, I was um, sleeping in a plum field in right next to Gilroy, California, in a little town called Morgan Hill. And I woke up, and these guys, uh, uh, I guess were like migrant workers or something, and I was either on their land or the land they were supposed to guard, had a snarling, it was like something out of a movie, snarling pit bull in my face, and they were screaming at me. 
you know, and calling me names and everything. And I remember thinking, well, this is probably it. I was pretty frightened then, but I don't think I was nearly as frightened as I was in the haunted mansion. At some point, do you remember something about the floor dropping? Like you're in a room and I don't remember exactly what happened after that. I think my mind has just blocked it out. It was so terrifying. Yeah. My main one is, is, is that graveyard with those three guys walking through it. And I remember the paintings and, and the train and that ballroom just freaked me out with all yeah. the ghosts dancing around. Yeah. That stuff was terrifying. It was so, so scary. And I'd love God. to do it now though, as an adult and like experience it again, mm-hmm. cause it was really well crafted, like just too, oh, much, yeah. too much for a four year old. Yep. So third question, what is the thing in your life that you've lost that you regret losing the most? Regret in terms of it, I could have stopped it, or regret in terms of it just sucks that it's gone. You know, no one's ever asked for that point of clarification, and um, I would be interested because those are two those are two different things for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the, the saddest one is is definitely my my father. You know, that just breaks my heart. It still it's it still breaks my heart. You know, it's it's still I'm still really really sad about that. It's still heartbreaking to me um, because we were just really really tight. You know, that has influenced my relationship with my own son. Um, in in some ways, like don't do it. You know, the way that he did because you know you can do it a, a different way. That's probably going to be better. But just in terms of like how much that support and unconditional love has saved me in times of need um i definitely want my son to 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 feel that you know i think it's really important so losing him i wish i'd had several more years with him he's only 68 um he was not he was not old do you ever feel like there's unfinished business you have with your dad was there anything you felt like was unresolved yeah i mean you know we were in a really good place um but there are certainly, as time goes on, you know, and, and when I, when my son was, you know, born and even now there are times when I'm like, gosh, I wish I could just call my dad and go, what do I do? Um, you, you know, it would be nice to have that, that's that voice of experience. Um, you know, and, and it's not, it's just not here. Man, the number of times I reach for my phone to call my grandparents, even still like, Sure. It, it doesn't happen as often as it used to, but it still happens at least once every six months where I have a question oh, about yeah. a, just a, a basic thing, something that my grandma or my grandfather could, could help with. And, um, no, it's, it's totally true. And I mean, even now, like my dad died in 2002, a couple of years ago, I got a song in that show, orange is the new black. Okay which like, you know, streaming TV wasn't even really a thing when my dad was alive. Like they lived way out in the woods. There was no internet. So he got web TV, you know, which was like a joke, but it it was something. Um, but he never had an email address. But when I got that placement, it was a big deal. It looked like I wasn't going to get it for a little bit and it was nice money. And I knew it would be, you know, decent BMI money for a while. And I, my first thought was, man, I can't wait for my dad to hear about this. You know, he's going to be so happy and so proud. Yeah. And that was, you know, 13 years after he died, 14 years after he died, you know, and I still like that. It, it didn't last long, but it was, yeah, it was there for a second for sure. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the thing that bums me out the most, you know, it, it just, it's, it's sad as far as, you know, I, as you know, you know, 
when you start dealing with, with, you know, your own problems and you go like, gosh, you know, I just wish that I had, you know, I, I don't know about regrets. There are definitely things that I, I would have done differently. Um, now and and most of them have to do with, with relationships that I was in, you know, even if it just means like ending them before I did, um, you know, or before they were ended or, or handling situations differently. Um, you know, I can see a lot more clearly now and kind of go, you know, should have gotten out of that relationship long before I did. And maybe I'd still be on good terms with this person or, you know, in the midst of it, you know, I probably shouldn't have gone and done this thing that I did or, or whatever that, you know, but I, I'm also a pretty firm believer that, you know, even it happening kind of this late for me that, you know, things are so good right now that that all, that, I guess that stuff just kind of, you know, for the most part needed to happen to get me where I'm at, you know, gratitude. Exactly. is a huge part of me not feeling too sorry for myself, but it's also really hard to dig for sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a guy I remember going to hang out with a friend of mine who'd been through all that. And he was like, you know, man, like sometimes I just, I, I keep it simple. I sit on my bed and I look around the room and I go, okay, I got blankets. I got a couple of books. I got some records here I can listen to. There's food in the refrigerator, you know, and, and I send out my thanks for that stuff and learning how to do that. Yeah. That's a huge deal. So go like, look, 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 you do have stuff, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You do have these things. And you do have some wonderful things that you've been allowed to, have, you know, like with you, with your grandparents, me, my relationship with my father, relationship now I have with my son, you know, sounds like you have an amazing wife. I have a great partner. Like it, it, I, I try to remind myself more than daily about that stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. I can happily do that. Um, so when I was a kid, before we moved out to the country and we lived in this neighborhood that, you know, to me really was, it was like going to war. It was not nearly as bad as a lot of people have it. You know, it wasn't like it was, it was inner city or anything like that. But the elementary school playground was right next to our backyard. It was lower middle class. Um, these kids, I had a friend that I was really tight with um, named Burt Bridger, and we had bikes. And we were by bicycle about 10 minutes from a place called the Fast Fair, which was a convenience store. And back then, convenience stores carried comic books that were 25 cents a piece. And we loved those things. His family was really Christian. And I think his mom had just kind of put the hammer down and said, you have to read like Richie Rich and bullshit like that. But what we would do is go buy the comics and he'd leave them at my house because my dad didn't care. You know? Um, so my father, we had enough to get four comic books a piece and tax, which back then that was a lot, you know, it was, it was well over $2. And we drove, we, we, we got on our bikes and we rode down to the fast fair and on our way there, I saw these kids that I knew were, were going to fuck with us. And they did. And Bert had already pulled out part of his money and they saw it. Okay. So they 
knocked us off our bikes. One of them rode my bike around for a minute and tried to kind of trash it. I mean, it was just brutal. It was just brutal, you know. Um, and they knocked us down and took our money. So we had no money. So, like, our, our egos are totally crushed, and we can't buy comic books. So we got up and walked our bikes up to the fast fair anyway because we could see it and just to kind of, you know, get our bearings. And this guy got out of a car uh, in the parking lot of this place, which held about four cars, pulled right up to it. And he was in a big kind of burgundy car, like Cadillac or something, and he got out. And he's an African-American guy, had a big long coat and a big wide-brimmed hat. This was probably 1977, And I believe me, I had already had the comics in mind I was going to get. You know, I was going to get Spider-Man, uh, Incredible Hulk. I was a Marvel Comics guy. And we're just standing there, and he walks up to us, and he goes, uh, he goes, what, what happened to you boys? Those guys just knock you down? And I said, yeah, they knocked us down and they took our money. My dad gave us some money to buy comic books with. And he went, it's tough. And there was this pause and he pulled his wallet out and handed us a $5 bill. And he goes, here you go, boys, go get yourself a whole slew of comics. And we did. I never saw that guy again. And I had never seen him before that. I love that story. It was remarkably sweet and kind. It was remarkably sweet and kind. I'm sure tons of other wonderful things have happened to me over the years, and they have, and I'm very thankful for them. But, you know, when it happens at a young age like that, especially like when you're that age and you get your ass kicked, you know, it sucks. Yeah. So you're going to remember the guy who comes along and, and sympathizes with that. Yeah. Um, and, and so he, he had his $5 bill. We went to town. Yeah. It was great. What's your favorite place to gig? Um, you know, if you'd asked me that a couple of years ago, I, I would have said Chapel Hill. I'm not sure that is still the case because I think now, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 50 and a lot of the people that, came to see me here for a long time are like me and you, you know, they have, they have families. Um, they don't stay out late. You know, I still do well here. I'm not sure if this is still my favorite place to play. I've always loved taking country music to New York city because people love it up there. Um, we played New York city twice last year. I'm sorry once last year, right after Not Tonight came out, and then once this year. And both those gigs went phenomenally. We played Union Pool, and then we played some other place that was like it. I got this ridiculous. Uh, Diviera Drive. Um, it's just yet another one of those places that holds, what, 75, 80 people. Yeah. Uh, there's like a million of those up there, yeah, but yeah. they're all great, you know. Um, I love playing in the city, you know, be it Brooklyn or, or or wherever. Um, we used two dollar pistols. We used to play a place up there called the Rodeo Bar that was a giant airsats kind of country and western place. But it was just so great, you know. Um, I don't know uh, that that 
you know, it's not a place that I would personally want to live. And it's weird that here I am, the country guy talking about, you know, mistrusting, you know, the city people, but I love playing there, but I do like, I love it. We always have a great time there. You know, people come they're they're happy. Um, I know that there's a country scene there, you know, there are bands and really good bands. I, I have often wondered if it's because it's not maybe indigenous the way that it is like for guys like you and me, um, you I've, know, to that same degree. I, yeah. I mean, there's something about playing New York city in an Americana act that's not so dissimilar from being in like Madrid, an Americana act. Right. Like the greatest tour right. of my life was with a band called the Lolos who were kind of a, um, I mean, you could call them Americana, but there was an element of, of, of like almost goth level of sadness to the music. And, um, okay. and the greatest tour of my life was 2006. I went to Europe with the Lolos and just everywhere we went, it was like, there was this, delight that we were there which is so different yeah. from touring in a rock band in the south these days no i mean it, it is and now that you say that like i was not thinking of europe so i, I if we're gonna go there yeah i mean like like i would say holland from for, for me in my experience there's a town there called utrecht that uh, yeah. played three times three times right what was the bar in utrecht um, you played we didn't play a bar we played i mean I'm not, I'm not saying this in an arrogant way because we did last time we did went there we did a full tour of holland and every other place i think was a bar but in utrecht they had a big music hall um and we were successful enough there to to play it um the first time we played it was a festival with like dave allen um and who else was on that bill maybe jimmy dale gilmore buddy miller you know all those those kind of guys who were around yeah. a lot then and still are um, and the second time we played that festival too, but the third time we went back, it was our show and we still played the same hall. Uh, it was like, kind of like a theater. It's great. And it's like, you're saying like, they're so appreciative. Um, when I was 19 and went to England and hooked up with this punk band and toured around Europe, I couldn't believe it when we got to Germany and it's like, we're like a, a you know, kind of a hardcore three-piece like and like there's a giant refrigerator here with premium beer in it and then there's like this spread with like three different kinds of pizza you know yeah. <laughs> all this insane bread and pastries and i'm 19 years old and never seen anything like that and, you yeah know, so yeah i mean there, there is a sort of appreciation it seems like that they have in europe yeah and then like one person's like oh i can't eat that i'm vegetarian and then someone scoops them up and then just takes them to like you know a falafel place and it's like on the promoter yeah. it's like that and you know i mean i love totally. playing music you give me a flat place push the pool tables to either side and you know and sure. I'll, I'll play a gig but you know there's something special about being sort of treated like an honored guest that makes you go oh, god this yeah. is why i do this you know um, yeah no for for real and i always like georgia too because back in the day um do you know dave marr do you know him yeah of course red river Star and boys so yeah. right so so we played with the Star and boys all the time the two dollar pistols we played with them all the fucking time and i loved we would do the star bar and then we would usually do the 40 walk because they were big enough to, you know, headline it. Um, and then he had the Merle Haggard birthday celebration there every year. I used to love going down there and being in Athens, you know, and I would go to Bizarro Walk Street and buy you know, horror comic books and all that shit. It's 
So uh, honestly, I'm not just saying that. Like I always liked Georgia a lot. I always loved playing there too. And the Star Bar in its day, I haven't played there recently. I'm sure it's still great. But like in the late '90s, early 2000s, man, it was. If you're a country band, you could kind of do no wrong in that place. Yeah, it was um, a spot. Yeah, it really was. I was messing around with with Greg Reese. Then I was playing in his band. Uh, uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were in Redneck Grease Deluxe. Wow, I was that's great. I was, and I used to. Man, I love playing that like like Western swing stuff, and you know a lot of his stuff had that feel. And um, oh yeah, I don't get to play that like that anymore with anybody right now, which is a shame. Um, visa and income considerations aside, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? good question i love north carolina i do despite its consistent desire among the especially among the working class people to to me vote against their own interests which they do you know pat mccrory as, as governor he doesn't have the interests of the working class in mind ever he never did i don't think jesse helms ever did a lot of people disagree with me about that um the fact that i think he was a stone-cold racist is enough for me to not like him but i also think he was dicking that with working class people um but i do love it here if not here the place i felt the most at home ever when i was not here was london england but i'm sure that has i haven't been there since 95 when i lived there it was uh, off and on as I, when i wasn't bumming around europe in 88 and 89 and i feel certain it's changed considerably since then but i adored it i loved it but then again i was young and i wanted to be doing stuff all the time and you could do stuff there every night now man probably somewhere out in the out in the woods here in in north carolina i love north carolina like i really do i'm a big fan of the old north state as they say um yeah you know having spent so much time with my grandparents there but i like my wife and I were driving back from Christmas from visiting family um, up in the D.C. area, and we stopped at this barbecue place um, just north of Raleigh on 85. Mm-hmm. And um, I had been telling Lisa something about – I had been telling my wife that you know there's something about people from this part of the country. They're just a tiny bit sweeter and, and, and gentler in a way that's hard to quantify. Like you can't always – and you would never know it by looking at like – North Carolina politics. It's pretty bare knuckled, yeah. uh, you know, class warfare oh, yeah. against the working class there, especially people of color. But there's something in people individually that I find to be just a little bit sweeter. And so we're at this barbecue place. It's January 4th or something like it's well after the holiday season and this Christmas music still playing in this barbecue place. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. And there's this sweet little like blonde headed girl, probably 17, 18 years old. It's probably her first job. Um, and she's wiping tables, and uh, we're like picking up our trays, and and uh, you know, here comes Santa Claus is playing. Like, and I and I turned to her and I said, "I bet you're getting pretty sick of that." And she said, "Sick of what?" And I said, "Sick of like Christmas music. It's been playing probably since the day after Thanksgiving, right? And now it's like we're into January and it's still going." And she stopped and listened for a second, and then she tilted her head, looked at me, and said. I like Christmas. <laughs> and I and just there you have it, East, Eastern North Carolina. Yeah. Nutshell. <laughs> I just felt like the most cynical dirtbag on the planet right then. Like, 
Oh my god, that's so great. <laughs> oh my god. There's a great guy up here. Just reminded me of this. Uh, I feel like, for whatever reason, just in the course of our conversation, I should give a shout out to him. Uh, he would love him. He's one of my favorite people. His name's Clyde Maddox. He played pedal steel guitar on three $2 Pistols records, the last three. And I just knew him as a you know older guy who was this phenomenal pedal steel player. And we get in there, and it turns out it turns out that he was. Um, I wouldn't have known this because he's not a braggart at all. Uh, Johnny Johnny Paychecks touring oh, pedal man. steel player during the '60s and some of the '70s. I think he he wanted to have his own band and kind of wanted a, a calmer lifestyle. <laughs> um, but he, he and Paycheck were tied to the point where Paycheck cut on one of those '60s Little Darling label records one of Clyde's songs um and he is like he's from Kenston and he is everything great about eastern North Carolina like it's every time I see him I'm just like man you are like you know and and he doesn't he'll be the first to tell you like you know I don't get involved in partisan politics but even he like has put up a couple of anti-Trump memes and stuff yeah. you know but he is he is just the greatest he is everything I love about Eastern North Carolina. You know, he's just he's just a, a, a golden human being. Johnny Paycheck, kind of tragically underappreciated singer songwriter. Like I think because he had yeah. sort of a novelty hit with "Take This Job and Shove It," people <laughs> overlook the amount of incredible work he did. Absolutely, absolutely, and he was really good to Clyde. You know, like when when labels wouldn't let him take bands. Um, he, you know, Clyde was like, no, he insisted that, that I go, even when he was working with pickup bands. But I, I, I did at one point, I said, can you in one word describe what he was like when you were touring with him in the late sixties, early seventies, mid sixties, late sixties, early seventies. And without a pause, he went berserk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Say no more. <laughs> um, do you have an ideal musical instrument? And if so, do you already own it? You know, I kind of do. Um, I, you know, I always wanted, um, there's a, a type of acoustic guitar that in the mid, mid sixties, late sixties, um, uh, Porter Wagner played one on his TV show. My mother did not like country music. You know, she, I think she kind of looked down on it, on it a little bit. She was a jazz person, you know, sure. and she was into Ahmad Jamal and Oscar Peterson, you know, um, Bill Evans. But when I was a kid, because of the way I smiled and because he was on TV, she knew who he was. She would always call me Porter Wagner. She'd go, come here, Porter Wagner, you know, and stuff like that. Right. So I always kind of, I always kind of loved him a big, big toothy grin. And I have one of those for sure. Um, he had a kind of guitar called a grammar acoustic and there was a Johnny Cash one um, and it took me forever to find one. I went and groomed guitars in Nashville and they just bought a collection or four of them in there in 2001 they were $1,700 a piece which I did not have um, I eventually found the exact kind I wanted it's blonde on all sides it was not in perfect shape I got it for 800 bucks about 10 years ago and I've probably had over the years, I mean, a grand worth of work done on it. Uh, you know, maybe not quite that much. Um, I don't take it to gigs that much. It sounds better than any acoustic I have. Like, that's, that's the thing. Like, not only 
was it the one that I wanted? But once I got it, I was like, oh my God, like it actually, you know, it actually has this amazing sound to it. I don't take it out on the gigs that much because it's a little fragile. Uh, if something happens to it, I can't replace it, you know, because those things, like everything else, they're just so expensive now. Um, I always wanted, when I was a kid, first musical exposures I had were Roger Miller as um, Alan O'Dale in Robin Hood when I was four. And, and the monkeys who I still adore. And I love Mike Nesmith's country rock and stuff and all that. And before orange is the new black, before that something happened and I don't know exactly what it was, but I got a big fat BMI check. And right at that time, a friend of mine was in Brooklyn at a vintage guitar store. And he hit me up and said, I'm in this store. These guys are totally trustworthy. They're great guys. And they have, um, one of the monkeys model Gretsch guitars from 1967 and it has all the monkey stuff on it. So that was a really nice guitar that was inexpensive. So guys into cream and shit like that would buy it and take off the pick guard that had the monkeys logo. And they'd take off the truss rod cover that said monkeys rock and roll model. They'd get rid of all that shit, replace it. So, you know, cause the monkeys are like a joke to people like that. This one had all that stuff on it. And they're usually about $3,500, I think, 3000 And this one was 1500 And I said, sign me up. So I ordered it. And I have that. Um, You're the second person on the show to mention the monkey's guitar. Is that right? I can't remember who the other one was off the top of my head, but one of my earlier guests was like, I have an original. Oh, you know what? It's not this show. It was someone else talking about it. It was uh, Jeff Tweedy has a monkey's guitar. That's crazy. So, and I, I'd never heard of it before he mentioned it. He was on um, Hilarious World of Mental Illness or one of those shows, and he was talking about okay. the Monkey's guitar. And he's got one with the Monkey's pick guard, Monkey's truss rod cover, which he also mentioned guys would take off because it was a nice that's guitar. Crazy. So to to make it even even crazier, this guy hit me up by email who had been hired by Gretsch to, I guess, you know, do the chronicling of the company's history or something. And uh, he said that a, a mutual friend of ours had told him that I had one of these. And I said, yeah, I do, but, you know, it's a big deal. The monkeys were huge. I'm sure there's thousands of them. And he said, no, there aren't. What we have realized is, and this was sort of lost to the mists of time, is that the guitars were not actually manufactured in large quantities. The poster was sent out to music stores with a price on it. And it was put up. And you could order it. And they were basically, for the most part, kind of manufactured on demand. So there weren't a ton of them to begin with. And he said, and finding one with all that stuff on it is damn near impossible. He said, Rick Nielsen has two. (laughs) Of course. One of which, (laughs) of course, yeah. One of which is autographed by all the monkeys. He said, Dolan's has one. He said, Nesmith has one. Um, he didn't mention Jeff Tweedy. That's crazy. But he said that he thinks at this point there are fewer than 200 of them with those original things in existence. He said there are manufacturers who make replica big guards and truss rod covers. Um, but that actually owning one, you know, now the value of them kind of depends on where the monkeys are at in popularity. And right now they're not in some huge, huge place, which is probably why I got it for, you know, any Gretsch guitar from the 60s for, you know, 1500 bucks is, is, it's not bad. It's not um, a bad deal. Uh, 
So, and the drums I have are, are Darwin, um, and I love that kit, and they're kind of hard to find now. I've always wanted a pink champagne Ludwig set. I just looked over my shoulder at mine. They're like 15 feet away. Is that right? Yeah, it's a club date kit. Well, it's a club date I kick always... and rack, and then a 1963 full-size 16 by 16 floor tom, the exact matching wrap. So, yeah. I always wanted one because Jerry Nolan from the New York Dolls had them on TV. I always wanted one because I had videotape of them on Don Kirshner rock concert. Yeah. Bootleg videotape, and he had them, and I always wanted some, but I've never been able to, uh, you know. Drums I'm not really buying now anyway, but yeah, I loved them. I just, I, oh, I don't want to pull this too far off course, but I just bought a set of drums I didn't need because Ludwig has reissued the Cortex wrap, which is basically for mica, and it's absolutely indestructible, and I still do some shows with bands that get beer thrown at them. And Oh, sure, yeah. And so it's just nice to know that I have something I can just sponge off and, and keep. And they're three-ply, Ludwig, 60s, you know, so that's all. They're going to sound amazing. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the Darwin kit I have, I really loved. I mean, it was custom. It was custom made when they were doing that. You know, it was not expensive. They sound so good. It's a 24, 24-inch uh, kick. Yeah, like um, a big kick drum, too. Not very deep, but and, and then 13 and 16. And it's just, yeah. Great. Uh, is there an instrument that you've lost to either theft or having to sell it to keep keep the lights on that you desperately wish you could have back? There is that kit is um, is kind of pearl sort of marine whatever pearl finish and it um, when it came with a snare drum. Now I I the I had already bought a Darwin deep wooden snare drum um, that I that I adore. It kind of gives you that nice bottom crack um but that one came with one with matching finish and i loaned it to a, the wrong person and i think he either sold it for drugs or it was stolen from him by someone who was going to sell it for drugs when i was probably 30 and i'll never see it again and that company doesn't exist anymore so it's a, a drum that was basically you know custom made for me by a company that doesn't exist anymore yeah, I don't really know Darwin drums that well. You know, I, I, I think it's the Fives people. I think it's part of that. Oh, okay. Um, so northern Alabama to Austin thing? Yes. And apparently a guy in Austin owns... Uh, I don't know whether this is true. When I was down there with the Disarmers at South by Southwest, I lost a, a um, floor tom leg, of course, and went to a drum store. Our, our then road manager took me to the drum store and the guy said, what kind of drums do you have? And I said, they're Darwin's. And he was like, holy shit, the owner of this place actually owns the five yeah. fives copyright. That's He's Tom, get Tommy's drum again. shop. Yeah. Tom, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Tommy's drum shop um, in Austin. That's really cool. And so I was excited about that. I've always wanted like a legitimate fives kit. They had one of the drum store in Raleigh called 2112. Of, yeah. of course it's called that, but it's a phenomenal, phenomenal store. No, I I, I was just in there on tour uh, and bought a bunch oh, of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, they had a smoke vibes kit, like the smoke Vistalite style, like fiber, I, fiberglass. I saw style. that one. Yeah. Yeah, they're the ones who, when I was in the Disarmers, I had a, a Dream Symbols endorsement, and they're the ones who pretty much engineered that. Um, sweet, sweet people. But yeah, they've had a couple of them over the years. I've always kind of wanted one, but 
I mean, my kid isn't set up right now. I'm supposed to, I'm going to break it out. I've done a couple of sessions recently and a guy wants me to come play maybe some shows with him and, and he's got a kid too. So I know the commitment will be low <laughs> and I love his team, so I'll probably break it out here, but I don't have one set up. So like having a second one, just, uh, you know, seems yeah. pointless. Um, if you could guest, uh, as a musician with any, uh, band and play one song live, um, who would it be? What would the song be? Do they have to still be alive? Nope. It would be. It would certainly be. I would have loved to have played with um, with Roger Miller. Yeah. I would give give anything to have been able to do that. Just to be around someone that creative and that talented, and just kind of you know maybe by osmosis or whatever, soak up some of that. Is there a particular song? Uh, he made a country album. You know, he had all those kind of goofy songs that I love, but he was a, he was a writer um, who wrote a lot of straight country stuff, Half a Mind for Ernest Tubb, um, uh, a bunch of songs that Farron Young covered. Ray Price did some of his stuff. Anyway, at some point in the late 60s, I believe 68 or 69, the label that he was on, one of the producers said, well, we should make a country record of you doing those songs these songs that you've written that are country songs and tall, tall trees, which was a big hit for Alan Jackson, you know, decades later, that was one of them. Um, I think he wrote that with George Jones, but anyway, so he made this record called a trip in the country and it's probably my favorite. Oh yeah. I know. I, hate, I don't like, yeah, it's like one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. Any of that stuff. I love that version of tall, tall trees. I love that version of half a mind. I love that version of um, yours is a world I can't live in. But without you, I can't live in mine. I love all of that stuff. Um, anything from that from that period, you know. He played somewhere when I was a teenager. My parents went to see him. I've never forgiven myself for not going to see that. My mom wanted, you know, had dinner with Elvin Jones. She was like, "Come on, come Whoa. let's go hang out." When I was sixteen, yeah, really. She was ensconced in, in the jazz scene, and I, I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to stay home." And I, I oh. it's just, just idiocy. I, yeah. I think he had just started playing with, with Ravi Coltrane at that point. And my mom was in the jazz scene, you know. And one of the guys my mom played with, a sax player had played with um, with Dizzy Gillespie and the Illinois Jacquette. And I have, when I was in my late 20s, I bought the Bear Family. I love Louis Jordan. I love all that kind of jump R&B stuff. Yeah, me too. So much. Winona Harris, all that stuff. Yes, yes, totally. So this guy... I bought Bear Family Records, put out a Louis Jordan box set, and I had money saved up, and I just thought, fuck it. I want all of the stuff he did for Decca Records. I'm just going to buy this thing. It's super expensive. And I open up the booklet, and there's the guy that, you know, has been having dinner, has had dinner with me since I was, you know, 12, <laughs> <and> my mom, <laughs> in, in this later lineup of... Um, of Louis Jordan's band from the, from the early fifties. And I got him to sign the book and everything. And he was on a Winoni Harris session when I think Winoni Harris had the Illinois Jackhead band backing him up. So this is early stuff. Yeah. But, so he played on some of that. Um, he had done a tour with, with Roy Brown, you know, he's a jazz guy. I don't know what he thought of that music particularly other than it was a way to make a living. I know he didn't hate it, but you know, he was a new jazz dude. He wanted to play jazz. Yeah. There's a famous, there's a famous story about, John Coltrane walking the bar in Kansas City. John Coltrane, also, by the way, from North Carolina, from High Point, North Carolina. Um, and he was gigging. There was a big jump job scene in Kansas City in the post-war period. 
a lot of guys playing that kind of music and and walking the bar for the solo sax player was part of the gig and he was walking the bar and I, I guess if I remember the story correctly Miles Davis walked in and and locked eyes with Coltrane and Coltrane just got down off the bar and put his saxophone in the case and walked out of there and never played jump trial Jesus again. Christ I've only got one more question okay hit me all right if you could imagine a taxi that could go anywhere in time or space um, it's not sort of constrained by the reality as we know it and you, you, you climb into the back of this taxi and you say to the driver hey man uh, take me home Where where is home It's either Memphis in 1961, 62, Nashville in the mid-60s, London, 1977. I think it's one of those places, I think. I'm sure, given time, I could think of others. Um, yeah, it would probably be one of those. I'm not. I would have a hard time narrowing it down between those, you know. But my father went back to Memphis. Uh, he was friends with some with an African American family there, who's, who the man was a was a minister through his father. He told me this great story that he went back there when he got out of the Air Force, late fifties, I guess. 1960, and he goes to this neighborhood where he's meeting this African-American guy and his family to, to visit them. His father, by this point, had, I think, had probably moved to Fayetteville, but he was back in Memphis visiting his friends, and he wanted to meet with his family, and so it was in a, you know, it's very segregated. It was in an African-American neighborhood, and he's walking down the street, and he sees these two white guys carrying instrument cases. I swear to God, this is true. And they immediately go to each other, what are you doing here? Because they're white. You see what I'm saying? No, yeah, I know. Um, and um, my dad says, well, I was visiting with, you know, this family, this this, this minister. You know, that, that was friends with when I was a kid. You know, he's, he's very close with my father. And What are you doing here? And he said, well, we actually work. There's a recording studio right here. And they walked into a movie theater. Oh, man. That's insane. Stacks Volt. Yeah, studios. Yeah, yeah the old theater there. Crazy. So, I mean, I don't know Memphis that well, certainly not now, but I guess that was in a black neighborhood. Oh, yeah. My assumption by his, by his story. I wonder who those guys were. Yeah, who knows? Wayne, you know, uh, 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 Wayne Jackson on trumpet, maybe? You know, could have been Duck Dunn. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But they, you know culturally speaking they were the white guys in this black neighborhood so they were like what are you doing here you know right, right. Um, man you know all of those times you mentioned are kind of like historical anvils where culture was just hammered out you know early 60s yep. Memphis mid 60s Nashville 1977 Clash Sex Pistols all that was and it's, it, it's all music related to me you know that's mm -hmm. that, I mean I'd, I'd, I'd love to say you know I mean, there's a part of me that would love to be there for like you know, historically more important things, but music is so important to guys like me and you. Yeah. You know, it, it, it gave me direction, it gave me something to do with my life. It gave me a purpose that like getting to be there when those important things were happening. That's just a huge deal to me to be able to see that, to feel that. I know people who saw the Sex Pistols in 76, 77, 
and I'm just like, how, what is, how, like what, oh my God, like how do you walk around? You saw the clash on the white riot tour. Like, how are you not like, you know, like, like, like sitting on Mount Olympus or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, this is insane. Yeah. I think so, though that like people sort of forget that like they could be seeing that music right now, like yep. seeing yep. And, and and I forget it for sure. You yeah. know, I mean, I saw drive by truckers with Jason Isbell, um, you know, the 40 watt. And right now, Jason, of course, is sitting on Mount Olympus in many ways. So. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, and, and we used to play with them, not nearly as much as the star and boys, but certainly the two hundred pistols played drive by truckers 10 or 15 times. And that to some of my friends is an incredibly big deal, you know? And I guess it should be. I mean, they're very popular, very successful. So it, it is. It's. I guess it's like that to those guys. But I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you got to run. Um, it's totally my pleasure, and and I hope that at some point our paths cross in, in person because it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks for letting me ramble on and on and on. <laughs> well, um, I I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks again. Yeah, totally, and. Um, and be in touch and for god's sake if you're up here let me know i'd I'd love to you know get in some hang time however brief no that's gonna happen for sure promise great great okay all right take care man cool man take care of yourself bye-bye all right that's our show for this week thanks everybody for listening Hey, thanks to Jake Kreger, our erstwhile producer. He sends me notes after every show to help me figure out how to make the show better. If the show is better now than it was the first time you heard it, that's all on Jake. Thanks to Gene Wolfolk in The Powder Room. All of the music that you hear on Crash and Ride is made by The Powder Room. The first song and the last song you hear are from the album Curtains, and that's available at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. That little bit of music you hear at the halftime uh, announcements, that's from the album Lucky. I played on that record. Both of those are available for download at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Heil Audio for the great deal they gave me on these two PR40 microphones. If you're looking to upgrade the microphones for your podcast, you should look into the PR40. It's a really great broadcast mic. I used to use it in the studio on snare drum, bass drum, and sometimes bass cabinet. Turns out they're also really great broadcast mics. The Heil PR40 sure made things sound better around here. All right, so until we speak again, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Ask for help if you need it. Go see live music, support your favorite band, and remember, loud guitars save lives. Yeah.